Welcome to another episode of The Cubic Report. Today we will once again speak to Melvin Rhodes, who has written many articles for the United Church of God. He also has his own blog, Mel Rhodes Place, where he comments on events in the world. Today is October 27, 2023. The war between Israel and Hamas is almost three weeks old. It has dominated world news and has given cause to serious worldwide thought where this will go, more so than I feel than the previous wars with the neighboring countries back in 1948, I believe, 53. There were several there, 67 for sure, and uh, 73, et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, first of all, Melvin, welcome to The Cubic Report. Thank you. It's very good to be here. It's good to always uh, talk to you, and I really appreciate your insight and analysis. As I've mentioned, you've written a number of articles for the church dealing with prophecy and history, a lot of it dealing with the British Empire, but a lot of things dealing with the Middle East. And one booklet that you have written, it's more than 60 pages long, is The Middle East in Bible Prophecy. You were the author of that booklet. It has been one of the most popular booklets, if not the most popular booklet, that we have offered over the years. So, Melvin, as these wars get more and more nefarious and involve more and more nations, in a path that's leading to Armageddon biblically. Can you give us insight as to what you feel is going to happen as a result of this war? Well, it would be nice to think that after Israel has gone into Gaza and cleared out Hamas, that everything would go back to the way it was. But I don't think that's going to be the case. First of all, I think Hamas is a more formidable enemy than it was. We have seen through television news reels that its influence extends even into other countries extensively. I mean, for example, in London, they had a demonstration for the Palestinians. 150,000 people were there. Uh, the police did not expect that many. They were taken by surprise. And that's because of the influence of Hamas. The same was true in Australia. A crowd turned up demonstrating. And I just heard yesterday that 48% of all young people in England support Hamas. Mm-hmm. 48%. Mm. It's unbelievable after what Hamas did on October 7th. It's like suddenly uh, everything's been turned upside down. And what happened on October the 7th was fine with these people. And now you've got uh, uh, the focus is on Gaza and the suffering of the Palestinian peoples. A classic example of this was Mrs. Um, Hanana Ashawi. Uh, she's a, an old lady now, but her mind is still young. And when an interviewer on Sky News was interviewing her about everything that happened, she kept on deflecting the question, like she did not want to address the massacre on October 7th. She did not want to address Hamas's involvement. As far as she was concerned, everything the Palestinians do is perfectly okay, including up to and murdering uh, babies from the West. Mm-hmm. Well, it's certainly, you know, it appears that way. 
and even in the negotiations right now for the hostages, it seems that, you know, I saw an interview on Sky News yesterday with the chief negotiator in Qatar uh, being interviewed by Sky News, and it seems like the demand that Hamas has for freeing the hostages, you know, who they took, you know, and some of them died, you know, in, in the process, and they were part of those that were killed in this horrific thing, and they're being hidden in tunnels uh, in, um, you know, in, in the Gaza area. And it seems like nothing will move forward until Israel totally withdraws and stops seeking uh, its particular uh, in interests in that area in bringing peace. I mean, it's just almost in insane the way that this thing is coming about, as you had mentioned. Yes, it is. Well, television governs everything, doesn't it? The, the news is so distorted, and uh, there's nothing we can really do about it. And they've, they've got their slank. They've decided on whose beliefs are more important. Well, it appears that mass media has really changed in the last 10, 15 years. Actually, a lot since the last war where there are blogs, podcasts, there are people, demonstrations, there are rallies that are organized very, very quickly, where things are just completely out of control as to how things are organized and happen. I'm just wondering where this particular is going to have its end game. Well, there's another factor which uh, influences things, and that is immigration into Western Europe. It's changed everything. Like I said, on, on last Saturday, when there was a demonstration in London, the police were not expecting that many people. But there were 150,000 Muslims demonstrating there in favor of Hamas. I think that shows the infiltration that Hamas has been able to achieve along with the immigration of people from Palestine and from other Arab countries. In fact, get this, I heard this on the news two or three days ago that there are now more Muslims living in England uh, than live in Lebanon. And that is staggering to me. Well, it is certainly a change in demographics has taken place in Europe. Even in the United States, there's a movement towards, towards sympathies towards people that we never would have thought we would have sympathized by educational bodies such as the Ivy League schools that support Hamas that support what's happened. And even people that I have known that have worked in humanitarian causes are organizing rallies for Hamas and the Palestinians. Of course, they get a lot of things aggregated that are quite different, such as Hamas and the Palestinians and, and everything. And then there are people who will speak up for the Islamic people. I know it's a very, very big, huge question as to are there good people among among those people? Is it a minor group? But it certainly is one that right now is taking front and center, and we are just concerned about where the killing will end in this particular phase. Yes, and I don't see that happening in the short term. If Israel goes into Gaza, after they've been there a few weeks, they will eventually pull out. And when they pull out, Hamas will just come back. And if they are not able to call themselves a mass anymore, they would call themselves something else. But I think the problem of Gaza is there to stay. I think, Melvin, it would be good with your background and what you had written in the booklet, The Middle East in Prophecy. You go back to the original 
origin of these people and how this conflict began. It, it might be good to know who in the world is Hamas, what do they represent, uh, how do they fit in. And also, I think that to uh, help people understand who work with Islamic people, and I have worked with Islamic people, I have worked uh, in the Rotary Clubs you know, with them, I have worked with people in Jordan, there are wonderful people. There are humanitarian people. There are generous people. You know, among them. You know, how do we separate all this out to where we don't just broad brush everybody in the Middle East as being a terrorist? Uh, maybe you could give us some insight. What I would say is this: that uh, the Palestinians, I think, are a particular problem. I mean, it was interesting to me last week that Egypt did not want to accept any refugees from Palestine. So I think uh, the Palestinians are known for their uh, contentious state of mind. They're all over the Middle East, but people really don't want them. As to when this all started, I mean, it's impossible really to give a date on, to put a date on that. 3,000 years ago, the ancient kingdom of Israel existed, and it existed during periods of captivity right up until the first century when uh, the Romans crushed a rebellion in Jerusalem and the Palestinians were dispersed, the diaspora, as it's called. Uh, there was another rebellion in 132. After that, there were no Jews to speak of. There were Jews there, but they were not, of, in, they were not significant in numbers to be able to play any role. But the Bible always showed that the people of Judah, as it's called, the Jews, would play uh, a major role in the end-time events prior to Jesus Christ's second coming. Right. And that is the period we're in now. So Judah was resurrected, if you want to use the term, in the last century, in 1948. The British pulled out because they couldn't handle all the fighting all the time. So they announced to the United Nations that they were going to give up their mandate. They had a mandated territory, which had been given to them by the League of Nations after World War I. Mm -hmm. And uh, things went fairly well in the, League of, in the League of Nations mandate, although there was uh, trouble at various times. In uh, 1948, Israel proclaimed an independent state of Israel in the half of the mandate that they were given. The other half, the Palestinians did not. They did not want to recognize the fact that there were two states. In fact, all along, whenever anybody had suggested a two-state solution, always the Palestinians at some point put uh, a spanner in the work, so to speak, so that it never goes through. Mm -hmm. They do not want a two-state solution. And it wouldn't work. There'd be too much fighting all the time. So I don't know what the solution is. The solution, as far as the Palestinians are concerned, is that they get back the whole of Palestine, which means including Israel. So Israel would cease to exist. But that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. And no. any reasonable person could see that that's where it's gone, what Israel has done to build the area up. A lot of people in the West also want the two-state solution, or they, they want the whole territory of Palestine to be united again, absorbing Israel into a Palestinian state. But, you know, 
I was reading something yesterday, I think, which uh, helps you understand this. It was in the latest Economist. On the back page, they always have an obituary. And sometimes the obituaries are very interesting. They're often of people you've never heard of. Mm -hmm. And this was of a man called Ove Lipstein, the mayor of Shagev Hanagev, was killed in the Hamas attacks on October the 7th, aged 50. He was the mayor of the communities that were all attacked on October the 7th. And a father of four sons, it doesn't mention daughters, but he was a very successful entrepreneur in the whole area and had turned this part of Israel, which was a desert, into a very prosperous community. So people are wondering now who's going to take over and make him more prosperous. But of course, there is the difference. You've got incredible prosperity in areas where the Jews live and work, and incredible poverty in places like Gaza, uh, where not much has been done in 75 years since it became uh, a territory ruled by the Palestinians. And I think at the heart of this cultural difference lies a major problem. Now, there's more differences, of course. I mean, the Jews are, are Jewish, and the, <laughs> uh, the Palestinians are mostly Muslim. There is a small number of Christians in there as well. The, the uh, Palestinians don't have that entrepreneurial excitement and the, 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 the ability to develop their territory in the same way as this guy did. And reading the article, I think, what a terrible loss to the community. He turned, I think it was 10 kibbutzim into prosperous communities. And uh, that's the way the Israelis had been. Since 1948, they've turned their territory, which was backward and poor, into a prosperous community. If you want to read what it was like before um, before the Jews took over, you should read Mark Twain's Innocence Abroad. Uh-huh. Because Mark Twain did a, uh, uh, he went on a journey on a back of a pony, I think, uh, to what was then Palestine in the 1860s, I believe it was, and just wrote this book on the the area that he visited. And that shows you how backward it was back then. Now, it did develop somewhat in the intervening years, because in the early 1900s, Jews started arriving from Europe. They often took over the land that they didn't take it over. I should rephrase that. They bought the land from the Palestinians who did not want it at the time. So the Jews bought this land and developed it and turned it into a prosperous community. And then eventually the British left and the Israelis took over and it just prospered more and more and it's become a very prosperous country. I don't want, one thing I can comment on is that on my visit to uh, Israel, we went up north to the Valley of Megiddo and it's a very, very prosperous valley, very, 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 very rich in agriculture with citrus fruits. In fact, when I went to college in the United Kingdom, a lot of the fruit that was that we had at the college had this little Jaffa sticker on. You know, it came from 
came from Israel. In fact, they even export to the United States. It's just that uh, prosperous. But they showed us the places where these uh, orange and grapefruit trees were growing, and it showed where the border at that time, this was 1969, two years after the 67 war, had ended. And all on the Israeli side was prosperous, rich, green, and beautiful. And then as soon as you came to the border, it was like Arizona, you know, the desert in Arizona. It was so stark, the same sun, the same sky, the same everything, but two different landscapes. One was developed and one was not. And I remember that um, our tour guide, you know, talked about the fact that, you know, they're waiting for the Messiah, people talking about Messiah to return to make the land rich. But he says, we couldn't wait. We had to take matters into our own hands and to develop this. I mean, there was a sense of entrepreneurship that was uh, re really amazing as to how they felt about developing the land. So uh, they truly have done that. And also, a lot of Jews from Russia, Ukraine, have, have emigrated there uh, to live or to work or whatever. There's a lot of uh, Russian Jews that have gone there because they've been expelled or they have been uh, made persona non grata in their countries that have gone to these areas. And also, I believe there's the sense of coming back as a pilgrimage to their origins, you know, which they recognize, you know, go back to Abraham. Well, you see, that's, a, I think, one of the root causes of the problem. Because if uh, the Palestinians took over Israel, it would revert and become a poor country again. And there's nothing you can do about that. Yes, it's a broader problem with humanity. I think that points out the fact that there has to be some fundamental changes in character and what a human being is and the values by which we live. Well, one thing I should point out here is that there never has been an independent Palestine. The way the Palestinians talk is before the Jews arrived, they were thriving community and, uh, and so on. I mean, really, they lived for 400 years under the Ottomans, from 1517 to 1917. The Ottomans were the Turks mm -hmm. who ruled over a vast empire in the Middle East. And the British finally took over in 1917, and that's when the modern history of Palestine uh, started to be fulfilled. Uh, before the Ottomans had the territory, if you go back far enough, the Byzantines had it, part of the Byzantine Empire. Uh, that was supposedly a Christian empire, but most of the people in that area became Muslims, and uh, gradually they took over the whole territory. That's right. There really has not been a... Palestinian state, but neither there has been an Israeli state over these years. Israel is just modern, yeah. you know, from 1917, the British mandate, and then 1948, about the time that, uh, you know, I was born in my lifetime uh, when Israel became an independent nation and has had to fight, struggle to exist. Well, there was an independent Israeli state if you go back almost 2,000 years. So you could say the Israelis have a prior claim on the land uh, because there's never been a Palestinian state, but there was an Israeli state. Melvin, you can comment about that ancient history, which really does give a key to understanding where we are now. Well, the Israelis, or the Israelites, as they were called in ancient Israel, uh, over 3,000 years ago, were given the land which today is Israel, and they were given more of the land than Israel is today 
back then, but they almost had to fight for it. There were constant wars and invasions by uh, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, all invaded the territory. Each one of them impacted uh, the nation of Israel. And then eventually the country was taken over by the Romans in the first century BC. And they stayed until 70 AD and beyond to 132 when there was another rebellion. But after those rebellions, the Jews were dispersed all over the world. And this is the origin of the term next year in Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. They always wanted to go back to Jerusalem uh, and, of course, were able to do that in the last century. You know, one, one thing, that Melvin, that I find very interesting that I don't have a complete full understanding of is that the Jews in their diaspora, wherever they have gone, whether it be to Europe or Australia or the United States or Russia or Ukraine or even the Stan Republics, I have been to uh, syn Jewish synagogues in Uzbekistan that claim to go back to shortly after the Babylonian captivity in the 4th, 5th century BC, how they have been able to maintain their identity, how they've been able to maintain their alphabet. Uh, I, I find that to be absolutely amazing. You know, we all have come from a, some, some background eth ethnically. You know, I'm Ukrainian, Russian, you know, I know that. But then a lot of people have pretty much lost that. They're just Americans and they don't even know what their heritage is. But the Jews, they all know who they are. Hitler knew who they were. I mean, Hitler knew exactly who to target in, in, what he, in what he did. What's he doing dealing with Jews in Poland and Germany that have migrated from these areas? And there's millions of them, and he killed millions of them. It, it is a, just absolutely astounding to me, with my mind, to understand how the Jews have been able to maintain their identity. Well, I think one answer to that is the fact that the Jews are different. This was explained to me by a man who did not like Jews in uh, Krakow, in uh, Poland, a few years ago when I visited Auschwitz. Mm -hmm. And he explained to me, he said, well, he was a Pole. He said, you know, the Jews are different. They go to church on Saturday, whereas we go on Sunday. And I thought that was a very perceptive comment because that would make you stick out in the community Everybody knew who the Jews were. And then, of course, you add to that the Jewish work ethic, which has produced uh, much more prosperous than average communities. I mean, in, in England, where they were not allowed to do anything, uh, they prospered because they got into money lending. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, but then the people got upset with them. Even the kings got upset with them because kings borrowed money from Jewish bankers. And then they didn't want to pay the money back. So the best thing to do was have a pogrom, kill as many Jews as possible, and then you don't have to pay the money back. Mm -hmm. I mean, this has been the story of the Jews. They're, they're not, I mean, they're, they're good in many respects, but, you know, not everything can be written about the Jews. But, I mean, it's just amazing how they prosper everywhere they go. And then they turn the people against them because they prosper. And that prosperity does not extend to the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, in the other countries that they live in. But uh, they still prospered. I mean, it's interesting now, 
that a lot of money is being sent to Palestine uh, by lots of different countries in Europe. And yet we all know that money will make no difference uh, because, first of all, a lot of it will disappear, um, mostly into the coffers of Hamas. And uh, it will certainly not be used for the purpose it's intended. Mm -hmm. So the Palestinians will remain uh, a poverty-stricken people, and they will blame it on the West. Uh, but it's not quite as simple as that. You've been to Israel, Velvet, haven't you? Yes, but uh -huh. not to Gaza. Uh -huh. I've actually been to Gaza. Uh, in 1969, they took our bus tour, would you believe, right into Gaza itself. But they told us not to get off the bus, that they were going to just drive through it. it they made a stop or two. But I know that uh, it was very, very um, amazing that when we stopped, the people would glare at the bus, you know, at our tour. I could tell that this was a different kind of people. There was a hostility towards Israel and the, the, the people that were coming in from the political part of Israel called Israel. Well, you talk about hostility. Uh, I mentioned Mrs. Uh, Ashwari who was a leading campaigner for the Palestinians, she could not show any sympathy at all for all the Jewish babies that were murdered on October the 7th. And uh, she could not say anything good about the Jewish community, about the settlements or anything. Uh, so you see how the people of Palestine with attitudes like that are never going to get anywhere. No, no. It, w it would be better. I mean, you could have this where Gaza uh, people are bussed into Israel every day. I mean, I know this happens to a certain extent, but they could do it on a much bigger scale, bussing people in to work in Israel. Right. And a lot of the prosperity then would be transferred into Gaza. But that's not the mentality of the people. Most of the people wouldn't want that. There was a book that was... Uh written by a Gaza resident. He was a doctor who it was, it was about forgiveness. It was about him in Gaza. The Israelis uh, lobbed, you know, a shell hit their building and killed a couple of his children. And he talked about how he had to work through forgiveness. It was really a touching book because it really uh, saw another side of what's possible. But for the most part, I, I do believe that there's been a war of revenge of one generation after another seeking revenge against right. against another. And it's almost become an art form of making certain that you don't love or that you will continue to hate the other side. You mentioned the children that were killed in the hospital. Um, you know, Palestinians tend to have a lot of children. And that is partly because uh, the UN gives them all kinds of incentives to have more kids. So they have a much higher birth rate than the Jews do in Israel. And so whenever Gaza is bombed, a lot of children are going to die. Mm -hmm. And that's a deliberate policy on the part of Hamas. So I don't know how you resolve that. I mean, when people have six or eight or even 10 or 12 children, you, you know, you get them interviewed on TV. Uh, a woman has lost one of her kids in his teens because he was fighting the Israelis, but she's still got 12 kids. So, you know, that's fine. As somebody once said, 
until they love their own children as much as they hate the Jews. We will never get anywhere. Very amazing statement. I am just appalled as to how harsh the Hamas or the others feel about their own people as far as protecting them and having all the rockets that have been fired, you know, being placed near hospitals, near school zones, uh, and other places where have vulnerable populations, and how they just plain don't care about their own people. Very good point, Melvin. Well, I don't see that changing in the short term. And if, if there is going to be a big war between Hamas and Israel, it would be impossible for the Israelis to kill every member of Hamas. And uh, Hamas would probably move out to those countries now where it is firmly based, like England, like America, like Germany. And so we will see an international spread of terrorism as a result of this. Melvin, what do you think is the outcome now of this conflict right now that's not even three weeks old? And at times I feel like it's going to just plain die down, but I don't think so. Uh, Where do you think this is going to go? From what I understand, President Biden has asked the Israelis to hold off while more protection is put in place for American bases in the Middle East. Not in Israel, but in all the different territories. Because I think the Americans realize that once Israel attacks uh, Gaza, that the whole world is going to rise up and there'll be demonstrations everywhere and American facilities would definitely be attacked. So I think, you know, that's one reason why there's a delay. And a second reason complicating things is the hostages, because no one wants to see those hostages die. But I don't see how the hostages can be saved in a military attack. And that might explain why there's no more trouble being stirred up right now so that Israel will not attack. I I don't know. It's difficult to read what's going on. Once the fighting is over, once Gaza is completely leveled and there's nothing left that could be a threat to Israel, then I think we will have some sort of peace for a while. But I I think that's where international terrorism will take off. Mm -hmm. they've They've not gotten anywhere in 75 years of terrorism against the Israelis. They have not been able to defeat the Israelis. Uh, But the West is different. We are not used to terrorism. And I think it's going to be something which will come into our communities, rather like the school shootings. You never know where the next one is going to happen. Right. And uh, it'll be the same with, um, with Hamas. And there'll be other terrorist groups active as well. And our immigration problems are just so uh, stupid because they, they, they don't consider America's interests. They're looking at, they're trying to consider the interests of others. And those others, in many cases, uh, are intent upon destroying us. Melvin, in the, the booklet, The Middle East in Bible Prophecy, which I will post on the notes to this podcast the link to find the booklet because it's a very, very fine, uh, a timeless booklet because the same thing keeps happening over and over again, just the behavior and the things that we've talked about here. Perhaps you could comment about another article that you had written, which is also equally as popular and maybe even slightly more popular, which was entitled The Seven Prophetic Signs 
before Jesus returns. Uh, can you uh, feather that into this discussion? Yes. There are some things that had to happen before we could enter the period prior to Christ's return. I mean, for example, the nation of Israel did not exist before 1948. And in fact, if a hundred years ago you were asked, what is the possibility of a Jewish state being established uh, in the Middle East? Most people would have said, no, it's impossible. It's not going to happen. But it did happen. And the fact is it had to happen because the Bible shows that at the time of the end, prior to Christ's return, there will be a Jewish state in what is now Israel. Mm -hmm. That's one of the, uh, the factors, and I think that's a very important one. I think another was uh, that it couldn't happen until a nuclear war was possible because Jesus Christ says, uh, you know, that man can destroy himself or man will be able to destroy himself uh, prior to the end. And, of course, we can do that now. So there's a second reason why we believe this is the end time. Well, there were seven reasons altogether, mm -hmm. but those were the two major ones that I remember. Since you mentioned nuclear, Israel is nuclear. Other nations around them want to be nuclear, such as Iran. Uh, where is this headed? Well, Israel has never admitted to being nuclear. But everybody knows that Israel does have nuclear weapons. And Israel's final defense, and this has been Israeli policy for a long time, is if the Arab countries all came into Israel and tried to destroy Israel, that Israel would then uh, use nuclear weapons to destroy the whole territory. So nobody would get anything uh, if uh, that happened. Um, but now you've also got Iran probably has nuclear weapons too, or at least is starting to acquire nuclear weapons. And you know, Iran is the, I, I think frankly, it was the, it was the biggest mistake of American foreign policy in my lifetime. In 1979, right up until 79, the Shah of Iran, the King of Iran, was very pro-Western. Mm -hmm. He aligned himself with the, the U.S. on so many different levels. And then Jimmy Carter, who was president at the time, allowed the public to rise up and overthrow the Shah. Mm -hmm. You ended up with the Ayatollahs in charge. The Ayatollahs do not believe in any freedom. The, Tsar, uh, the, the Shah uh, allowed certain freedoms. So the Shah was definitely a lot better than what's replaced him. But now the Ayatollahs are in charge. There is no hope of ever overthrowing the Ayatollahs. At least I don't think so. No, and it here's Iran with 80 million people. And they just had a meeting with Hezbollah, Hamas, and Iran. You know, that was televised or sh the promotional photos were shown on television. It seems like they're combining together. Then you have Russia, of all things, chiming in and weighing in on the whole thing. Of course, right. China is weighing in on the whole thing. Uh, U.S., Europe, the U.K., it is truly an absolute mess, if you want to call it. I would hate to in any way be in a position to try to figure this out when you're dealing with people who do not have the capacity for peace. They're going to continue to 
fight against peace, they're going to continue to agitate against peace and um, ultimately reap the consequences of that behavior. I heard a chilling comment. I think it was on Sky News of the weekend. Uh, some uh, military expert saying that he did not see how we can avoid a nuclear war sometime in the next 12 months. And as you know, with the war with Ukraine and Russia, which is approaching you know, more than a year and a half, it will be two years this coming February, that uh, there's always been the specter of nuclear exchange between NATO and Russia. And mm -hmm. different scenarios are given of what would take place in a nuclear exchange. There would be millions, tens of millions of people who would be killed. That's right. And that, that would really be the end of civilization. It really would be. Our job is to proclaim a new world. <laughs> the Bible predicts, the Bible knew already long ago from the book of Re in the book of Revelation that, uh, and also from what Jesus Christ said in Matthew, that uh, unless he intervened, no flesh would be saved alive. And I think we're coming to those points where we're given even timelines, like you said, 12 months, and you know, it's not, not going to be long. Well, the fact is, too, that I don't think that what's happening now is a part of the uh, end-time scenario because the final battle takes place at Armageddon, and that's somewhat to the north of where uh, Gaza is and where all the other problems are. So I think we've still got some time uh, before all that happens. But eventually, the Middle East is going to be the major cause of the, uh, the final collapse of Western civilization. And uh, it's just going to be an awful mess between now and Christ's return. Everything depends upon the return of Jesus Christ. Everything that's happened in the Middle East in recent years goes back to prophecies which were spoken in, or written down in the scriptures. And uh, we know that uh, uh, those things are going to come to pass, and some of those things are awful. You know, it's an interesting thing is that when we take a look at prophecy in a peace-like, let's say more peaceful environment, you take a look at what aggression is taking place, what the reaction will be, who will rise up. And but when I take a look at prophecies now, I'm looking at the positive prophecies. <laughs> Christ, come and return and straighten this mess out, because no matter what type of scenario I create, it's, it's not going to be right. It's been the story of my lifetime in the last 30, 40 years. I thought there would be this alliance of nations. That didn't work out. It went to becoming something else, and then it reverted back to the old. I don't think that we, we even know that. We need to focus on the most positive of prophecies, knowing that a lot of ugly things will happen before that. Well, one thing that is very positive is that when Christ returns, he will sort out the religious mess uh, that contributes to this. I mean, there won't be Muslims or Jews or Christians anymore. People will know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and, you know, he's going to be in charge. So that will sort out that mess. But then there's a lot of other messes. Well, anyway, some of that we'll have to leave till next time. I think so, too. I, 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 I am so thankful that we've been able to have this discussion. I would just like to have you tell us, maybe advise us on some good news sources I, I know we all tend to kind of get into a groove of what we watch and what we listen to. Can, can you tell us about any good places to go to to get at least less biased information? 
Well, talking about that, there has been some controversy in the in the UK because the BBC will not refer to Hamas as a terrorist organization. And uh, after what they did on the October the 7th, people just find that unbelievable. But the BBC will not consider any changes to its policy. So that's one source that is not as reliable as it used to be and as it should be. Sky News, I think, is pretty good, but they still lack the biblical knowledge mm-hmm. uh, of how important the BB- how important the Middle East is, and of course uh, the prophecies relating to it. As regards any good news, well, I don't think there is any good news coming from the Middle East. Uh, there's not really any source you can go to. You know, just uh, just keep reading and studying. Never lose sight of the fact that God is in charge. Right. That ultimately, it's all down to him. I, I don't worry about these things on a daily basis because I know that God is in charge. And I know that if I die in some terrorist act, in the next moment of my consciousness, I'll be resurrected. So I'm not unduly worried about it. Mm-hmm. Well, Melvin, it's been great talking to you. I've really appreciated our discussions. This is about the fourth or fifth podcast that we've had about world, you know, things that were hot in the news at the, at the moment. And we do appreciate your insight. You also, as I mentioned, has Melvin Rhodes Place blog, and I'll post the link to that in the notes, and also a link to the article, which is the booklet, I should say, The Middle East and Bible Prophecy, and also the one about the seven prophetic signs before Jesus returns. We do want you to go there. Those all these sources are free. All you got to do is click on them and have some really good insight. So, Melvin, thank you very much. I wish you all the very best. Thank you. I'll see you next time. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to us today on The Cubic Report. We welcome you to share this podcast and tell your friends about it. We can be found on a variety of platforms, including Apple and Google Podcasts, Pandora, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audible, and many other platforms. You can easily find us at any browser address box by typing in the words, The Cubic Report, and there we are. Remember, Cubic is spelled K-U-B-I-K. So we'd love to hear from you. Write to us at vcubic at gmail.com. That's V-K-U-B-I-K at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. Come back soon for more.